Welcome back to another episode of Great Women in Fraud. Today's amazing guest is Dr. Martina Dove. She has written a book that I highly recommend and will be talking about. I love talking with her because her story of getting started in studying fraud was from being a victim. Her book, The Psychology of Fraud, Persuasion, and Scam Techniques, is a well-highlighted book in my fraud library. Let's get started. This week, we have Dr. Martina Dove. And I will tell you that um, we met on Twitter. Like I looked back through my LinkedIn messages and yes, we met on Twitter in January of 2017. And um, I'm going to let her talk about kind of her specialty, but I will tell you, I have her book, The Psychology of Fraud, Persuasion and Scam Techniques, Understanding What Makes Us Vulnerable. And you guys can't see this, but you, but Martina sees it. And I have so many yellow sticky notes on it because I love it. And the first thing I am going to say is to start this off. It's at the beginning of her book to fraud victims everywhere. It is not your fault. It is a crime. May you find your voice to tell your stories proudly. Oh my God. I love that. So Martina, welcome to great women in fraud. And why don't you give your sort of elevator speech? And thank you. Oh gosh, elevator speech. Um, yeah, so um, I kind of got into fraud by accident, really. I kind of uh, did something for my master's, which was very interesting. I was doing a master's, um, uh, like I was doing a research project, which was to do with cognitive biases. So the Barnum effect, which is kind of tricking people into believing the feedback you're giving them is the personal feedback when it's actually just a vague nonsense. Um, so pretty much like clairvoyance scams work. Um, so I kind of wanted to do something with that. I wanted to do something that is similar to that. And I didn't really know how until I read a really good article on persuasion in phishing emails uh, and how psychology is used. And this is kind of what sparked my passion and led to my PhD. And um, I've been passionate about fraud ever since. And um, this book really is um just like i knew i was gonna write it as soon as i interviewed fraud victims for my first study and kind of dived deeper in that um as well so yeah like this book has been really cool and i have a lot of sympathy for fraud victims and what i go through and i myself was scammed on ebay as well one time and even though i got my money back um i was still very angry and very disappointed in human nature um so i know what it's like to um, kind of be scammed. So yeah, um, I that's how I got into fraud. Now um, I'm a UX researcher for Tripwire now, so I'm working on cybersecurity solutions. So that's super exciting too. Just kind of merging psychology with cybersecurity um, knowledge too. Well, that's the thing is like you know you're working at Tripwire. But you're more, I'm going to say more the softer sort of skills. So you're not like the, you know, I, the total stereotype coder, you know, hacker, anything like that. But you're like, what, why people do it. And fraud is committed by people. So it's so important to have people like you that understand why people do it. So just. Just a little clarification, I don't actually have a lot of data on why people do it. And the reason for that is that I was never successful at attracting scammers to talk to me. And I don't know that anybody is that, ex that kind of um, uh, 
you know, successful at that, especially when it comes to personal fraud. So I know that when, um, you know, like when white collar crime happens, a lot of the times the organization spot who's doing it and catch them and prosecute them. So, you know, a, a lot of the times when this happens in a private to private individuals, it's very difficult to get to the scammer and get them to talk. Uh, so that's, I was not able to find a lot out there apart from the fraud triangle explanation as to why people commit fraud, uh, as to what motivates people to, to commit fraud. But my specialty is more kind of what scammers use to persuade when they do social engineering and what makes us vulnerable as humans to these kind of persuasion techniques that they do. Yeah, and that is a big difference between like my work where I'm working with you know either the victim or the suspect and it, it isn't as anonymous is the work you've done, but the work you do is so important. So what I really, another, I mean, I loved a lot of things about this book, but you give examples of emails and you give examples of, you know, um, how they do it. And I love, I wrote down, okay, so you have the scam experience, which, um, you know, you have precursors, commitment and aftermath. You're, I mean, obviously you have a PhD. You're like, the examples, the book is really, really good because it's got great examples, like useful. You can hand this book to someone. You have a checklist and anyone who knows me knows I love checklists. So you've got a checklist. Like these are really useful things. So um, yeah, I, I, I think it's great. Now, as I said, we have a speed round to start things off. Mm -hmm. And even though we're a few minutes into it, we're going to do the speed round. And um, I just warned Martina about it right before, because this is kind of new. So no wrong answer. But first one, Mac or PC? Oh, Mac. Okay, this is two for two. And not includes me, so three for three. Okay, now this one I don't know if you're going to know or have an opinion on. Who embezzles better, men or women? Ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know. Um, I kind of want to say men, uh, but I think women are catching up. Mm, okay. Men steal more, but women steal more often in my experience. But I, I like that you say women are catching up because yeah, women, yeah, absolutely. Equality, <laughs> equality everywhere, <laughs> even in fraud. Um, and then is there a famous crook or cop that you would like to sit and have coffee or dinner with? And who would that oh, person be? Yeah, I think Frank, uh, Frank Abagnale, is it Abagnale, Abagnale, um, who is, um, you know, famous Catch Me If You Can, fraudster. Oh, have you heard the new book about him? I probably have not. Oh, you need to check out the new book about him. It appears he might not be quite what he says he was. Oh, no, no, don't shatter my dreams. Oh, um, I really... I'll, I'll I re the, the link in the show notes and I will send it to you. And it is, uh, yeah, okay, you got to cross him off the list. Who else? Oh, my gosh, like, he scammed me then. Um, but, yeah, no, I really enjoyed his book. Um, uh, another famous Kirk. Um, or cop. Gosh. Or detective. Hmm. I don't know, to be honest. Ooh, ooh, that's a tough one. I really don't like this round. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a tough one. I don't know um, that many detectives that kind of like, I mean, do I, you know, can I sort of say Poirot? 
<laughs> Does that yes. count? Okay, you could do Poirot. Yes, okay. You can bring him back from the dead or the fake yes. or whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. No, 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 that's a good one. That, I like that, I like that. Okay, so now we gotta go to some quotes because like Bertina okay. can see all my little sticky notes. I just love them. So this says, even after I, and this is in the introduction, even after I received a refund, purchased a phone and moved on, I would periodically have flashbacks of the incident and it made me question motivations of anyone I did not know. I simultaneously felt ashamed that I was not more mature and able to move on from this relatively benign fraud experience that did not even result in the loss of funds and extremely angry that this happened to me. This is a struggle most fraud victims have long after they were defrauded, coupled with a sense of injustice. I read that and I hear that all the time from my victims. Yeah, so I was scammed on eBay. So like it, it's not as dramatic as it sounds. Basically, I purchased the phone. It wasn't even that cheap at all. Uh, it was a new phone, purchased it, didn't get it, put in my claim, I got the money back. But there's this sense, you know, like there's this sense of kind of like, I could have checked something, you know, I could have checked what else they were selling. Because as soon as I realized that I wasn't getting the phone, I checked and I could see that they had other items and that other people are complaining. Um, you know, it's kind of like that realization that you trusted someone, you know, it's kind of like, like I think a lot of the time, and this is something that I've heard from a lot of fraud victims that I spoke to, and I had one person talk to me, he didn't even lose any funds. It's not even the funds sometimes. It's the fact that actually, uh, you know, you trust in humans and that trust is just like completely destroyed in that moment. So I think that was really for me, I, I and plus, you know, like between you and me, I really enjoy petty revenge. Um, thoughts, you know, I think it's, it's, they're healing, you know, just kind of playing out in your mind, like, you know, and I was playing out in my mind, like, hey, you know, how PayPal would take money from their account, and they would be stranded somewhere, because now they wouldn't have fun, you know, like, like all of those things kind of come to your mind when you, when you playing this over and over, trying to make you feel like, like yourself feel better. But yeah, there was, um, you know, it made me really appreciate how, how horrific, it must feel if you lose, let's say, your life savings to a scammer, you know, on top of, you know, that trust being gone, but also your safety net being gone, how horrific that might be. Yeah, so this goes to, like, I don't know if you know the statistic, but they say, and it's statistics, so, um, only 15% of all embezzlement cases are turned over to law enforcement. You have shame and humiliation. And mm -hmm. I mean, I know people and I'm it, mostly older people who have lost money and they are too embarrassed to tell their children, like adult children. Yeah. The yeah. is huge. Yeah, like I think it's really difficult as well at, um, you know, there's, there's a really, really good um, uh, Australian researcher called Cassandra Cross, uh, a professor Cross, she actually has done a lot of research with elderly people and how much blame they put on themselves and not on a scammer. And, and I think it's really, uh, it's sad that people do that, but it's understandable. You blame yourself because you didn't, you know, you didn't protect yourself, right? So the first kind of blame falls on you, you know, in terms of 
how you process these kind of thing. Um, but what is really complicated as well in terms of elderly people as well, a lot of the times, um, you know things are changing, so your cognitive functions may not be greatest, and you're ashamed to admit that. And that is just one one kind of proof that maybe you're not as 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 independent as you once were. And I think there's also, you know, it's probably why scammers pick on elderly people the most uh, and target elderly people. They have money, they have retirement funds, um, you know, and they may be more vulnerable in terms of that. They may be isolated. They may not be in regular contact with their family or they may be living on their own. Um, so I think there's a, this added layer of shame. Like, I don't want people to think I'm, I'm unable to now take care of myself, you know? So that's that's particularly sad, I think. I used to joke, my mom, rest her soul, I would never give her a computer. Like, you know, she got to the point where like, if I would have given her a computer, she would have told me about the Nigerian prince. So it was like a joke with this networking group, like, cause they would ask me a lot about elder fraud. And I'm like, just take the computer away. And we can't do that. And we shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, no, my dad, I mean, like I have a um, an elderly father and he's still, bless him, he's still very much on top of his game. Um, but even he's, he's like, he's able to kind of share with me and say, hey, like I'm noticing I can't make simple maths in my head anymore. Like he used to calculate how much he's spending in a shop and he would kind of like have a little mental thing with a till. Um, and, and he's kind of like said to me, I, I, I'm realizing I'm making bigger errors now. Um, and I sort of said to him, I commend you for telling me this. And please, you know, whenever you have these thoughts and things, share this with me, because this is how people become vulnerable when they notice these things and they just don't tell anyone. So your family is not aware. Um, you know, and I would say like the biggest thing we can do against fraud is just, just share and ask for help and ask for second opinion and kind of like just, you know, just share your story to make people aware of what's happening to you and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this goes to in chapter two, fraud can also be perpetrated against private individuals, but this is often not viewed as seriously as other types of fraud. Fraud victims get very little sympathy as if being scammed somehow implies being responsible for the victimization. And that was from Cassandra Cross in 2015. Yeah. Um, basically it's, um, you know, Professor Cross did a lot of research in just how, you know, what is the rhetoric around fraud victimization and, and pretty much, and I found this in my studies as well, um, that people sort of have this idea that fraud happens to stupid people. And, you know, like when you think about it, if you give to charity, if you give to GoFundMe campaigns, you may not even know that you were defrauded. You know, some of those campaigns could have been fraudulent. You know, a lot of the times people have this erroneous uh, thinking that, you know, it, it wouldn't happen to them. And I think, you know, like I actually found in my studies that that makes you more vulnerable when you think this wouldn't happen to you, that it only happens to some people. So I think we need to kind of change our views as a society and realize it can happen to anyone. It just, you know, some scammers are better than others. You know, maybe you didn't meet a good scammer yet. So, ah, you know. You didn't meet a good scammer yet. That's a, oh my God, that's, that's a good one. So, um, and then it's like there's a distinct lack of research when it comes to fraudsters, especially those who commit fraud against private individuals as opposed to those committing occupational fraud. And that is so true um, because they're one-offs. 
Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the times I think, um, you know, very little uh, uh, fraud against private individuals actually gets, gets you know, investigated and, and, and prosecuted. And it's like, I think it's slightly better in the US because you guys have FBI and there are more on the case than in Europe. Uh, fraud is a lot more brushed on the carpet because there's just no resources dealing with it. Um, you know, you need dedicated forces and a lot of the times local police uh, just doesn't have those resources. So it's really kind of looking at what is the biggest kind of like impact in terms of you know, so usually fraudsters that commit crime against many people, maybe the elderly people, maybe the amount of funds that get taken. Um, so so I, I just think, you know, I wish we would prosecute even the smallest of frauds just as a deterrent, you know, because I think it's just very much. And then again, like if you keep the amount low, you may not even get on the radar because the police won't even bother with small amounts. But you may be defrauding thousands of people of small amounts and that equals quite a large gain for a fraudster. So I think, you know, like I would like to see a lot more done for fraud victims. Absolutely. I totally agree. And then um, I don't know if you know that I'm the fraud hashtag queen, but one of my hashtags is never underestimate a woman. And then I'm reading, this is still in chapter two. Either way, my advice would be to never, ever underestimate them. And I love that because, and just the, the term optimism bias, we think it won't happen to us. We're just that much smarter. We're just that much more careful. There is um a retired astronaut rocket scientist that lives in the greater Seattle area, smart guy, was on Boeing's board. I would say he probably is, you know, off the charts smart-wise. He got ripped off $750,000 by his administrative assistant for his one of his foundations. Yeah, so like one of the things that I always say to people is that fraud has nothing to do with how intelligent you are and it has a lot to do with what needs that you have are unmet because really what frauds do they meet some kind of unmet needs that you have whether that's you know like you know i mean to give you a solid example people are a lot more vulnerable to financial frauds when they are not you know financially stable why is that because they have a greater need so they're willing to risk more um you know are you more uh, willing to chat to strangers online uh, when you're single or when you're married, probably when you're single, because you already have your needs met in a relationship and you're looking for those needs to be met when you're single. So it's kind of like, I think I want to educate people that it's uh, very little to do with your intelligence and a lot to do with, um, you know, you know, perhaps other, other characteristics that you may have, like a level of vigilance, how impulsive you are, um, whether you're somebody who's just like slow, making decisions um so like you know do you need to think this through do you not like to be rushed are you somebody who's compliant you know those are all of the things that actually matter a lot more than uh, your iq or intelligence because at the end of the day if you're impulsive and intelligent you'll still do impulsive things and scammers really rely on you being impulsive um so you know those are the things like i think the needs are needs which falls under circumstances and are human factors, you know, what makes you, you, right? Um, and, you know, I say this as somebody who used to be terribly impulsive and I had to learn not to be so impulsive, you know? So, you know, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, you learn by mistakes, making impulsive decisions and, um, you know, you do better. 
Well, um, you know, we're both, well, you're, you're, you're a doctor, so I'm a, I'm a fake doctor. No, I'm not even a fake doctor. <laughs> you're a queen. <laughs> but um, the whole idea of uh, Danny Kahneman's system one and system two in this quick thinking versus the slow thinking and the slow thinking is the more logical, ethical thinking to slow down, to sleep on it overnight. Yeah, so that and also like whether you're making decisions under strong emotion. So there's a like I I'm a great fan of Professor uh, Greenspan. Um, he wrote a book called Annals of Gullibility, yes. and yes, I, I I just love him. He's great, and and like he explains it really well. It's kind of like it's you know whether you're making a decision under like a strong emotion and what does that mean right if you want something really really bad you'll be kind of excited about it so your decision is going to be biased if you don't want something like i can make a decision not to purchase a tesla car but i don't care about cars that much you know so it's kind of um you know whether you have this strong emotion around this decision and i think that also gets overlooked. And then on top of that, there's the system one and system two. Are you just making an automatic decision or is this decision actually something that you have to think a little bit more carefully? It's, it's complicated. It's like all of these factors kind of coming together and making uh, you know, your experience very unique, right? So the situation you're in is the situation rising some strong emotions, fear, um, you know, when you get a phishing email that it's a extortion email and you know you've been surfing the porn websites you know suddenly in that moment you'll have a fear because it could be true you know and under that fear you're likely to do something that you wouldn't do in in another moment you know so i think really emotions come down um, to how likely you are to just kind of make an impulsive decision make a quick decision make a irrational decision so it's kind of all comes you know, like I, I like to say it's complicated. It's many factors. Yeah. And sometimes uh, it's not a maybe great analogy. The perfect storm happens. It's someone who normally would never, but maybe they've just lost a spouse or, you know, they lost their job or, you know, something. It's that perfect fraud storm. Um, and, and it can happen to the best of us. And, you know, I truly believe that honest people make bad decisions and can steal. Um, the, the sort of the scammers you're talking about, it's like a full career. Whereas like my pink collar criminals, they're generally good people who have never broken the law. And then you got the first yes. triangle or they had the opportunity. But the scammers, it it's it's their job. Have, okay, so this is another question. You know, obviously, you're. We can tell audience that um, Martina is not from the states, but she's living in the states. Um, you're from where? Okay, I know you're from the UK, but like, what part? So I'm actually originally Croatian. So I'm from Croatia, but I lived in London most of my life. So I lived in London for a long time. So are you watching Lupin on television? Do you know, I've heard about it. I haven't started watching that yet, but it's on my to-do. Okay, so this goes to another question, which I usually ask towards the end, but we're going to ask it now since I brought up Lupin. And that is, are you binging any like crime or anything fun these days from all of this? What are you binging? Yeah, um, so the latest thing that we watched was Mayor of Easttown. Is it Mayor oh of Easttown? Oh my gosh, yes. It's very good, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's very, very Did good. Did you see the end coming? Yeah, Um. I kind of didn't and i'm usually very good at seeing ends coming my husband predicted it 
Um, my money was on, maybe I shouldn't say it, but my money was on her love interest. Oops. I thought it was so funny. So Kara Swisher, who has the Pivot podcast, um, she, she, you know, guessed this. And then once she guessed it, and I'm not getting no spoiler alerts. Once she guessed it, I was like, Ooh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So no spoiler alerts. If you haven't watched yeah. Mayor of Easttown, you should watch it. Kate Winslet, good. excellent job. So any other things that you're like? Ah, uh, yeah. What else did I watch? I mean, there's many, many others. Um, um, I, I don't know. Like, so, so this is on Prime, and I absolutely love it. It's called Silent Witness. I've like rewatched Silent Witness so many times. It's about a pathologist um, and like she kind of solves crimes. Um, so, so it's kind of about this pathology office. It's one of the BBC dramas, Ooh, you I know. Yeah. It's called Silent Witness. And that's my go-to thing. I just absolutely love it. I like it's ridiculous. I'm like, it has something like 20 seconds like 22, 23 seasons or something. And I would say um, the actress changed at season nine. Uh, so from season nine is a little bit more modern and, um, and interesting. But she has been, like this pathologist has been in so many dangerous situations. She's been buried in Mexico and shot at, and like, like you know, it wouldn't happen to a normal pathologist who never leaves the lab. Like, I think, you know, kind of Dr. G probably wouldn't, kind of get into those kind of things um but yeah it's pretty good I, I really really like that I love I love all BBC kind of like dramas um and things like that so so that's kind of like something that I watch almost every night oh and re-watch and so and you know what I don't know if you noticed this but there's a theme here two women basically detective crime solvers so yes. I love that yeah yeah just great women in oh. yes yeah <laughs> totally Okay, and now our, this is at the wait end of chapter two. I love uh, I love this because it's just so true, but it's also a little so sad. Um, the system is broken. Fraud is not always easy to investigate and prosecute, but treating victims of fraud with respect should be easy. An honest, transparent, and sympathetic way of dealing with victims of fraud is sorely needed. Better prevention is needed, especially as the prosecution rates are so low. There seems to be very little risk to wannabe fraudsters when it comes to perpetrating fraud. Sharing stories, raising awareness, and destroying stigma attached to fraud victimization is the key. We are literally like daughters from two different mothers because <laughs> I, I don't want to victim shame. And I, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I cannot wait to talk to you because it's so important. It's so important. And you know, like I... My first study um, that I've done in my PhD was to interview fraud victims. And one of the things that actually um, came out of that, which was a surprising finding, but really important finding is that sometimes the treatment they receive from the authorities when they're trying to report is actually more victimizing than the fraud itself. You know, it's actually uh, that realization that you are on your own that the government doesn't care, that nobody cares, um, that there's no help for you. And, you know, like I remember one of the, the, the people that I spoke to said to me, you know, I changed as a result. You know, I don't stop for anybody in the street, even if somebody wants to just ask for directions, 
I just don't stop anymore. And it's, it's sad. Another one told me, I don't trust small companies anymore, you know, small websites, um, you know, because they've got defrauded on one. And it's a shame because there may be thousands of small companies trying to make it. I'm just not going to trust them because I've never heard of them. Uh, and it's that thing that actually we don't realize how harmful it is what we're doing to fraud victims when they're trying to tell us what happened. Um, and I think that can change. You know, I think I get the funding. Um, I get that you don't have uh, the means to prosecute everyone. I get that it's difficult to prosecute fraud, especially with jurisdictions. Um, if a scammer is in Nigeria or Russia or whatever, you're not going to be able to. But you can treat victims with respect when they're trying to report. You can be honest with them. Don't just take the report. You can tell them why it's going to be difficult or what are the prospects of prosecution. And I just think a lot of the times, like, I mean, my PhD was in UK, so it was mostly concentrated on UK victims. Um, you know, like really the authorities weren't very open with victims in terms of what they can expect. You know, they build them up like, yeah, yeah, reports, we're going to do something about it. And then absolutely nothing. Um, so I think that's really damaging. Oh, like, oh my God, preach, 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 preach. This is, uh, yeah. And, it's, you know, I, I've said this recently lately is um, it used to be sexual assaults weren't reported. And part of it was because the victims knew that they'd have to go onto the stand and they'd say, so what were you wearing? Now that's irrelevant. It's totally irrelevant. And so the whole world of you know fraud and pink color crime is like, I want to normalize it. So people mm -hmm. won't be able to get, they won't be too scared to go up on the stand and say, yeah, you know what? I didn't open my bank statement. That doesn't mean they should have stolen from me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. So now in chapter three, we're not going through all the chapters because you guys just have to buy the book and there'll be a link in the show notes. But I like to make fraud fun and you clearly like to make fraud fun. Now this is <laughs> the most ridiculous and highly entertaining example of this scam was a Nigerian astronaut stranded in space asking for funds to come home. And people fell for it. Yeah, but you have to actually understand the history of Nigerian scams. So, you know, there is actually a theory out there um, because they're so well known and they've actually been around for, some researchers say they've been around for centuries. Um, there is one researcher that says uh, they originated around 70s and they were perpetrated by like telephone door to door, even telephone packs. Um, so they've been around a long time and um, they're very, very well known scams. So one of the theories is that they still circulate, not so much that they are hoping to snare victims and get kind of like, you know, kind of steal your money, but to identify the most vulnerable people who would fall for anything. And then Selling the details of those people is what's lucrative to the scammer. So they're really kind of like a, like a sort of a fishing net, right? Yeah. To see what they can pull in for other scams. Um, so this is why they make them so ridiculous. Because if you really fall for that, then you must be either having cognitive decline problems or dementia or some kind of cognitive impairment that would not make you think rationally. 
uh, or you're incredibly um, unsavvy in terms of how fraud, fraud is perpetrated and how they work, or you have learning disabilities and again, you can't process what's happening. Um, so if they can get those people, those people are worth money to them. Um, so really kind of like, uh, I think somebody from Microsoft actually proposed a, um, like, like why can't specifically say they're from Nigeria. They're so well known that they actually just want to identify the most vulnerable victims whose details are then sold on. So that's a sad part. Yeah, I have a friend whose mom is cognitively, you know, challenged right now because she's older. And um, she called my friend, her daughter, and said, oh, I got flowers. And it was from some guy. And my friend explained, too much to explain here. But basically, I said, so now they know your mom's address. They know her birthday. Like, you realize they're building up. Mm. And she hadn't even thought of it like that. She's like, oh my God, they do have her address. It's no longer just the email. They have a physical address. They have her birthday because, you know, he sent her flowers on her birthday. And so they're, you know, engineering a lot of information. And once they cycle through, then they're just, yeah. And they're patient. Yeah, the patient. And like, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked actually coming from Europe. I kind of feel... Fraud is few good years behind what was happening in UK in terms of we have porch pirates stealing our packages. I mean, that was happening in the like late 90s um, in London, you know. So I'm kind of like kind of shocked at how innocent it is here. Um, but I think it's catching up. One of the things that really shocks me, um, you know, I started working in the in the US and you deal with recruiters, and a lot of the times the re- you know, the recruiters are just entering you in the, the tool and they want four last digits of your social. And I'm like, uh, no. Um, so I always lie and I just give them four last digits of some other number that I remember. Uh, they don't know, but like, I don't want their database to be compromised and somebody can do a lot with the four last digits of my social and my name and maybe my date of birth, you know? Um, and it's that kind of a thing. People are not really thinking. They're still kind of, uh, stuck in this old way of kind of like identifying, you know, I'm pretty sure like 20 years ago that like nobody was dealing with identity fraud so much as they are now. Um, so kind of like it was okay. It's no longer okay, but people are not catching up. So yeah, I was a little bit shocked how things that you would, wouldn't would ever divulge in London, or like you wouldn't even leave a bicycle on your porch in London because it would disappear overnight. <laughs> That doesn't happen in the greater Seattle. I know where you're at. So yeah, yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone where you're at. So um, yeah. so what advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue your career? Like your career has had some zigs and zags. And I think you're ending up where you should end up. Yeah, I mean, like I I kind of, you know, like I went from academia to cybersecurity Um uh, and I'm only now breaking into cybersecurity, really. This is my first cybersecurity job, so to speak. Um, so I kind of went from research to cybersecurity, but I'm still a researcher in that company. Um, I'd, I'd say, like, I really see that within five years, we're going to be mindful of human factors in fraud. So I would say, um, you know, like I know not a lot of university are teaching, but I know that one of the universities and I actually have a good a good colleague and a friend um, 
a professor Rod Graham. Um, he teaches at the university, uh, like Old Dominion University. And I know that he teaches, um, you know, kind of vulnerabilities to fraud and, and criminal justice and stuff like that. I think people are definitely trying to bring human factors in fraud kind of into the modules of, um, you know, cybercrime and, 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 and crime, uh, you know, criminology modules and stuff like that. I know my university, when I was there, didn't offer such modules, but they, I think they're starting to offer more specific kind of cybersecurity, cyber crime modules and this cyber psychology as well kind of is getting bigger. So I think that they, you know, there is some choices now that I didn't have when I started. Um, so I would say explore, explore some good courses that are happening now as a result of, you know, people like me who have written the first book on this kind of thing. Um, you know, kind of like tying it and kind of saying, hey, this is important. It's going to be quite, quite important. So that leads me to my next question. I, one of my questions is, if you were going to write a book, what would it be about? Yeah. Well, you wrote a book. Do you have a second book that you're thinking about? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I was thinking the other day, how fun would it be to do something else from scratch? But I don't know if I have the time, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, this book was a lot of work. Um, there was a lot of research that I actually knew about, so it wasn't so difficult. But there were some things that I had to kind of like do and learn about, like deception. Um, so, you know, it's not so easy writing academic books. I, I guess it's not so easy writing fiction either. Um, so, so watch this space, you know. Um, I think I need to recover first a little bit. <laughs> it's kind of like childbirth after the first <laughs> one. And then, yeah. Oh, sick. same here. Same, same here. So um, what do you do to stay on top of your industry? I mean, you're kind of in a new industry, but what do you, are, do you have resources? I mean, I know you and I talk, we love Twitter. Yes. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, the biggest thing that I kind of do, uh, I'm connected to quite a lot of academics in the field, people that I've met at conferences, um, you know, people who are in cyber psychology, uh, who are in cyber crime, who are in cyber, um, like, like security. So people, my, my, my contacts on LinkedIn, my contacts on Twitter, I would say, this is how I get exposed to things that they share, that they talk about, um, you know, their research um their efforts and so on i would say that's kind of like the main part i'm not very good at kind of like you know and perhaps that's why i wasn't a very good academic i'm not very good at going and reading journal articles you, you need to put it in front of me you know you need to make it interesting so i really like to check twitter and i like to kind of i follow a lot of really good people that's how i kind of kind of uh get um exposed to what's going on yeah, I totally agree with you. So um, uh, where can we find you online? Is Twitter best or is LinkedIn best? Oh yeah, Twitter or LinkedIn are both really good. Um, my LinkedIn is at Curious Shrink. Um, so <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so yeah, like I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm usually, I would just say, if you are adding me on LinkedIn, do write me a little message because yep. somebody just randomly adding me without telling me, like I, I kind of ignore that and think it's spam. So if you want to connect with me, tell me you want to connect and why. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. 
So this is my, and I think, you know, you know, who told me this is our mutual friend kind of fangirl thing is Jenny Radcliffe. I say at the end of my, you know, the podcast, is there anything else you want to tell the listeners, but I haven't asked you. And she goes, oh my God, that is such a law enforcement catch-all question. She goes, but it's a great question. So that's my question. What haven't I asked you that you think the listeners, great women in fraud should get out of this or that I haven't asked you? Yeah, I would say like what I would like to say to everyone in fraud, um, you know, I would like to see people promote human factors like vulnerability. I mean, you know, like what I see a lot of is people making systems secure, but we still in the early stages of realizing that people can make any secure system vulnerable. And this is also uh, worthy of actually special attention and special uh, trainings, special things that, um, you know, awareness. And I know Jen is very good at actually just pushing that in people's faces because she's so good at actually just, you know, tricking anybody to do anything and, and, and you know, proving companies how easy it is actually to be hacked uh, through the people. Um, so I would say, like, I would like to see fraud prevention specialists um, and why not women? You know, I've met some really good women in uh, in that space. Like I said, um, you know, Professor Cassandra Cross, I would say follow her on Twitter as well. She's great. Um, you know, yeah, let's make human factors a little bit more known. Um, they matter and they can make you vulnerable. So that's, that's so interesting because I have this, um, one of my crazy sayings is all the artificial intelligence in the world is not going to stop fraud if you don't open your bank statements. So like in everyone wants that, you know, software solution that will stop fraud and humans are at the core of fraud. As Joe Wells says, fraud is not an accounting problem. It is a social phenomenon. So yeah. the human factor is so incredibly important. Um, I will put links to, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and your book and reach out to Martina because she does great stuff. And truly, I, you're going to want to get the book because, and if you have older parents or just older people you care about, reading this is really helpful. It's really, really helpful. So thank you so much, Martina. No, thank you. Um, I really enjoyed myself. And sorry about the lightning round. It wasn't so lightning. Um, uh, no. <laughs> What did you think? Another great episode with lots of insights and resources and binge watching suggestions. Martina was fantastic and so interesting. I love how she has taken the softer side, the human factor, and has been able to transition into the private sector from academia. These softer skills are so important because they are human skills and humans are at the core of fraud. Thank you again for listening. Here is a most recent review on the podcast. Kelly's podcast is such a great and informative experience. I love hearing her stories and those she interviews. Great tips are provided for those of us committed to fighting fraud. Thanks, Kelly. Keep up the good work. And I say thank you. Reviews are the best way that people find out about the podcast. And we want to spread the word because hashtag sharing is caring. See you next week. Thank you.